Good morning, church. Happy Mother's Day. I almost sent an email last night to just let you know that I, uh, in honor of Mother's Day, we'll be preaching through the Word of God. Because <laughs> I know some of you have invited children or husbands uh, or relatives to come, and, and your request for Mother's Day was just please come to church with me. And so we're going to see if maybe God won't sneak up on somebody today while we're here going through His Word, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. John 14 is where we are, so if you have your Bibles, John 14, I'll give you one more place to mark, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, both found in the New Testament, John 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, let's get into the Word of God together, what do you say? Fathers, thank you so much for godly moms, and Lord, I just pray also Knowing that today is for some a day of rejoicing, uh, for others a day of grieving, Lord, a day of difficulty. And so we lift all these up to you, Lord. We know that in the body of Christ, we suffer with those who suffer, we rejoice with those who rejoice, that we are a family, and that on any given day, some are struggling and some are rejoicing. So Lord, I pray you would give us as a body a great sensitivity to people, to read between the lines, to see behind uh, the, the mask, and to be sensitive, and to be loving. Lord, I pray that you would increase our love for one another. And Lord, as we talk and, and sit at your feet today, learning about what you said about the Holy Spirit, Father, I pray you would just, scales would drop off of people's eyes, and they would understand and see that this Christian life is not a, just a, simply a moral life, a life of just doing good or being good. But it's a miraculous life, a transforming life, Lord, that, that you take up residence. It's a mystery, Lord, in, in our hearts. So, Father, just show us another piece of that mystery and help us to experience all that you have um, died and been resurrected so that we could experience. That the things that we talk about would not just be academic or words in a page, but that we would live this life that you've called us to live by the power you've given us to live it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. We are in John 14, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, for those of you that are, are new around here or here for the first or second time, you'll find it's very easy to keep up with, go, what's, with what's going on around here and what's preaching because we just start in chapter 1 and we work our way through uh, the entire book that we're looking at. So we started in John 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, we discussed the fact that John wrote his gospel so that we could believe. And by believing, we would have life. So he's continuing uh, to write based on these things. And in John 14, they had already, Jesus had shared the, the Last Supper with them, with his disciples. And John 14, 15, 16 is some of the most comprehensive teaching in the Bible on the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit gets a lot of bad press, doesn't he? I mean, there's a, the, the minute somebody hears Holy Spirit, you go, oh, okay, that's, that's some weird church my parents used to go to, and people danced in the aisles and fell all over the place and did weird stuff and, and gave the Holy Spirit all the credit for that. So, but, you know, when you study the Word of God, you study it, you realize that God didn't write, you know, okay, chapter 1, the Holy Spirit, chapter 2, salvation, chapter 3. He didn't organize information that way. So to learn all there is to know about the Holy Spirit, you have to learn it in context in the different places. 
Uh, in the New Testament, you know, Paul writes a lot about the Holy Spirit. And there, there's a number of places, but as far as Jesus' words, John 14, 15, 16 is absolutely phenomenal. And what we're about to read, really, as, as one of the advantages I have, you know, the greatest, the greatest uh, miracle of being a teacher is that you get to spend all this time reading and, and learning from God's Word. And, uh, and so it's very edifying to me personally to be reading these things. So the issue is Jesus has told them, look, it's time for me to go. I have to go. They've been walking together for three years. Now I have to go away from you. Where's he going? He tells them, I'm going to my Father. Going, to, going back where I came from, back to be with God, the Father. And they're, this, this really trips them out. They, they are freaking out now because they're sorrow. They're full of sorrow. They're troubled. And they don't know, how, is, how are we going to continue on? I mean, we've become dependent on you in a lot of ways. You, your presence, and we, we need you. How can we ever live without you physically here? And they're very troubled by that. And so all of this that, that Jesus says, that Jesus teaches them the night before he's crucified. I mean, this is just, this is the night before he's going to be crucified. All of it is to settle their hearts and give them confidence and give them assurance that Jesus is not going, even though he's physically going away from them, he's not going to leave them alone. And that's where we ended up last week there in verse 18. He said, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. So verse 19 of chapter 14, Jesus speaking again, he says, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. You remember what he said to Martha when Lazarus had died? I am the resurrection and the life. Though a man die, yet will he live. And so he says, he says to them, look, because I, this is so, he's on his way to be crucified. He's told them, I'm going away to the Father. They, they were scared to come when they went to, to, to Lazarus because Jesus was a wanted man. He was in danger. And so he says, because I live, you will live also. He doesn't say you'll live because you juice and eat chia seeds and drink coconut juice and all that stuff. That's not, you know, those are all physical body kind of things. And, and I'm okay with all that health food stuff, but just recognize that's not what gives you life. You, you can die really healthy. Life, this is, this is a clarifying statement. And, and we'll get more into this in John 15 when Jesus talks about the vine and the branches. He says, look, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Life, a branch cannot survive on its own, right? I mean, if you prune a tree and you take that branch and you cut it off the, 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 the vine or the, the main part of the tree that's rooted and you discard it, does that, does that branch then begin to leaf out and bear fruit? It doesn't. It, what does it do? It dies. If it's not connected to the vine. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell you and I. A lot, everybody, we're, we're all alive here, physically. But maybe not everybody is alive spiritually. Because true life, and this is what John wants you to know, and this is what Jesus wants you to know, and this is what I want you to know, that there is only one way to have true life, and that is in connection to God through Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. He says it right here. Because I live, you will live also. But he says, a little while longer and the world will see me no more. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be resurrected. And interesting, you'll have to check me on this. He says, the world won't see me, but you will see me. 
I couldn't find a single incident after Jesus' resurrection where he appeared to unbelievers. Think about that. I don't know. Now, I could be wrong. I, I looked and I did some research, but I couldn't. most of his appearances, all of his appearances that I could find, were appearances to individuals or small groups of believers. So I don't know. Check that out to give you some homework to do. Came to church today on Mother's Day and I gave you homework. Not very nice. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That's confusing. I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you, and we're all in each other. And it just speaks of this, 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 this unity, this fellowship between the disciples and Jesus, and Jesus and God, and God and the disciples. And there's, there's no, you, you can't separate all these things out like, well, God I love, but Jesus I'm not so sure about him. Well, Jesus I love, but people. I don't, know if I, I don't know if I like people, but I like Jesus. At that day, the day of Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, then you'll know. Right now, they're still trying to figure this out. All of that he's teaching them is very confusing to them. This is like out-of-the-ballpark stuff that, that Jesus is telling them about. But he says, that day, you'll know that what I've been telling you is true. Now look at verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. There's a lot of love going on in this chapter. A lot of love. He who has my commandments, another way you could write that is he who has my commandments and keeps them, this is the one who loves me. It's so easy to say, I love you with words. And a lot of, oh yeah, man, I love the Lord. It's, it's real, it rolls off our tongue so easily. And it's interesting, Mother's Day, we try to find something that, uh, that says I love you to mom, right? That's what our goal. I want to say, do something, I want to give something that says I love you. Matter of fact, here's some interesting Mother's Day statistics. 83% of people polled believe that texting mom Happy Mother's Day is just not good enough and unacceptable. Moms, getting a text that says Happy Mother's Day, unacceptable? Would we agree? Okay. The total money spent on Mother's Day, $19.9 billion. So evidently there's some people that are going, where's my cut? You know? <laughs> where's my share of that? I don't, all I got was a text. Now there are a lot of restaurants and businesses that are offering, offering freebies for mom. Uh, for instance, if you take mom to Shoney's, she can get a free slice of Shoney's strawberry pie. This one I couldn't believe. You know who's running a special for Mother's Day? Hooters is running a special for Mother's Day. I thought, now, guys, don't do that. Don't even think about it. Come on, honey, we're going to Hooters for lunch. They're, they're offering $10 value, a meal for $10 as long as mom buys a drink. Guys, ten, $10, honey, we can save $10. Don't do it. I'll give you 10 bucks, okay? <laughs> don't, please don't do it. So what will moms get for Mother's Day? $1.9 billion is spent on flowers for Mother's Day. And no doubt a lot of mothers in here are going to receive Flowers. Matter of fact, 69% of all the gifts given for Mother's Day are flowers. And then, of course, a lot of moms get candy and chocolate 
and 133 million cards are exchanged. Makes it the third largest holiday for cards to be exchanged. Now, I'm going to give a little clarifying thing here. If you got flowers for your wife or for your mom for Mother's Day, that's good. Don't return them because of what I'm going to say next. That's good. She likes flowers. Flowers are good. They're thoughtful. But here's what I want you to know. The gifts that were wanted least by polled moms were flowers, chocolate, and candy. So isn't that, do you see this difference? What we say is, oh, mom, we want to do something that says I love you, so we're going to give you candy, chocolate, and flowers. And mom's saying, well, the things that least say I love you to me are candy, chocolate, and flowers. Somewhere there's a disconnect, right? Matter of fact, so what do moms want? 30% of moms just want to spend Mother's Day with family. And number one on mom's list was um, a nice meal and maybe a spa day. All right. Now, I didn't make the list, you know. But I'm paying attention. I'm a spa day. All right, got that. And I know in here, you know, this, of course, comes from information that's not uh, Christian in nature. But I know for a lot of moms, uh, a spiritual walk for their spouse uh, a spiritual walk for their kids. And that's why on Mother's Day, I know some folks in here that started coming to church because on Mother's Day, mom said, will you please go to church with me? And then we'll spend, that's part of spending the day together, right? Now, go back with me to John chapter 14 because I want to show you something. Jesus says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it's he who loves me. What says I love you to God? What, what, what do you do? You want to tell God, the God who owns everything, you know, what do you do, bring him flowers? He says, I own fields of them. They're all mine. What do you give to God? Who, what, is, what says, I love you, Tim? What do you think says? Well, we sing songs. Oh, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. You know, we, we sing. Or, or I tell him about how passionate I am for him. And, and we, we, we talk about how intimate I am with God. And he says, what I really want is I just want you to do what I asked you to do. Because what I asked you to do reflects my heart. You know, how many parents in here, you know, you're, oh, love you, mom, love you, dad, you know, whatever. But I just want you to just listen to me for a change. Just do what I ask. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that say I love you if you, if you said, could you clean your room? Say, well, sorry, I can't do that, but I love you. No, if you loved me, you would take out the trash. You know, you would do what, just, I don't want to keep asking you and asking you and asking you and asking you over and over and over. What that says to me is you don't care what I want. And you don't care what I think. You want to tell Jesus that you love him. It's wonderful singing songs and talking about how passionate we are and talking about, you know, how, how we love him and how fervent we are and, and all these things. And, and emotional, the emo, you know, we're, our generation, especially the young generation, is very into the emotional love of God. Because we, we, that's where we are as a culture. To us as a culture, love is just simply an emotion I feel. Biblically, love is a choice to sacrifice for somebody. It's to do them kindness. And so when we talk about loving God, all those things you can say, but to the one who has his commandments, who takes the time to know what he wants. You know, the Bible says to husbands on Mother's Day, to husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding. Now, it doesn't say husbands understand your wives, because that would be like, you know, sorry, I'm done. That's never happening. 
but you can dwell with your wife with understanding. I don't understand her, but okay, I'll go with that. You know, I'm trying to be understanding of what you know, makes you tick and how you operate and all those things. Right? So with God, you may not understand why he asked you to do what he asked. Why does God ask me to, to love my neighbor as myself? Why does God ask me to, to do these things? Loving my enemy, really? Is that what blesses you, God? He says, yeah, it is. Because that is when you're going to most reflect me to the world. So the one that, so this is so clear. This is what it's about. It's about just, obe- just simple obedience to the word of God. Don't make excuses. Don't justify your sin that you're living. Well, I love God, but I love my girlfriend too. And we decide to live together. We're shacking up now, but we love God together. No, God says, don't get involved in sexual immorality. Because you can't say, I love God, and, and, and keep on in, in your sin. He says, if you love me, then keep my commandments. That's the one who really loves me. And now, interestingly, goes goes farther than that. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him, make myself known. So this is obedience to the Word of God. And not just, not obedience like, well, like, you know, you make your dog obey out of fear. You know, if you don't obey, I'm going to spank you or something like that. That's not the idea behind obedience to God. God, we love him because he did what? He first loved us. So the obedience of a child to a parent shouldn't be a forced or a fearful obedience. But it's a loving obedience. I want to do. He laid down his life for me. I get to do what he asked me to do. Lord, you've given up everything for me. What can I do for you? I want you to love your neighbor. Okay, something else. Give me something easier. I want you to love your husband. Oh, okay, that's, give me something easier. Help me out. I thought God loved everybody. Doesn't the Bible say God so loved the world? So then how can he say, doesn't this make it seem like and he who loves me will be loved by my father. Like God only loves those that love Jesus. Isn't that what it seems to say? Isn't that interesting? And then, and then I'll love him. And, and the person that's obedient to me, that's the person I'll love and, manifest, and make myself known, reveal myself to him. These things are all true. Now Jude, in the book of Jude, which is one little tiny book back toward the end of the Bible, Jude makes this statement. He says, keep yourself in the love of God. How do I do that? He gives a few ways, you know, praying in the Spirit, building yourself up in your most holy faith. Keep yourself in the love of God. God does love the world. Absolutely, that is true. God, did, God, did, did the father love the prodigal son? Even when the prodigal son was eating with the pigs, had gone away, it was far from his father, did the father still love him? But could the son experience the father's love? while he was living apart from his father in disobedience. No, he couldn't experience. So the love of God was there. The love of the father was there, but the son had chosen to walk away from it and therefore couldn't experience the love of God, the kindness, the favor, all of those things that are connected with God's goodness to us. And it's the same. I, I think... I think that's what Jesus is trying to say. That yes, God loves the world in a general sense, his goodness, his grace to the world. But there's a specific sense in which the obedient believer discovers that God's love is is made known as you obey his word. 
And you see, oh God, you're so good. I did what you said and I saw that and the blessing and the benefit that you connected to that has been so good in my life. Would anybody agree with that? I mean, does that sound, I think that's, the, that's what I think Jesus is trying to say. So of course, verse 22, Judas, uh, John having to clarify, not Iscariot, you know, Judas's name was kind of, the, the name Judas was marred by, by Judas Iscariot. But this other Judas, also known as Thaddeus, uh, says to Jesus, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Like, how are you going to do this? How are you going you know, when, to manifest this again, to make known, and they would expect the Messiah. And if you look back at, uh, in, in Matthew 24, when the Messiah comes, it's going to be like lightning flashes from the east to the west. I mean, it's going to be this very obvious and clear thing. So for Jesus to say that I'm going to make myself known to those that are, love me and keep my commandments, it's like, how are you going to do that? How's that going to work? How can you make yourself known to some people but not others? Well, Jesus explains that. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He will. That's what will happen. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. That word home it's only used two places in the New Testament. Only, only two places in the Bible. You know where the other place is? It's right there in John 14, 2, where Jesus said, In my Father's house there are many mansions. Same word. Mansions, it's translated there. Home, it's translated here. Dwelling place. A place to remain. Now, to some people, that might be kind of scary. God, you know, I remember when, when Helga and I for, uh, I used to live in Charlottesville. Helga lived out here in Palmyra. And, and you know, we're, we're, when, when I do a wedding, one of the things I, I say as, as part of the, the service is to the wife or to the husband, do you now agree and, and commit to make your dwelling place with your wife, your wife or your husband, to make a place where you two will dwell together? So two in marriage, two becoming one, uh, joining, joining lives together, habitating together dwelling together. That's a hard thing. I mean, when we live together, we're going to be like sharing a bathroom. And we're going to learn stuff about each other that's, you know, that's been private. I like to keep certain things in my life private. But when, when you live with someone, then it's sort of exposing, isn't it? You guys need, this is like ongoing counseling need over here. too. <laughs> Next Thursday again, same time. <laughs> Used to be Jerry would say, amen, but now he just laughs. Oh, here we go again. Oh, was any consolation when, when Helga and I joined our lives together and I had to move out of my, I had a, a man cave in Charlottesville, you know, and uh, it was very, it's just very plain and simple. And now we got, now I'm married and we've got knickknacks and flowers and stuff, you know flowers I got her for Mother's Day. <laughs> so we, we have a little farm, and so Helga's got flowers all over the place. So I say, here's the scissors. There's some nice ones over there, honey. Because <laughs> I can't do it. I can't. Anyway, I don't know. So we moved in together. You know, we got married, moved in. And she, so we had to load up all my furniture from my apartment in Charlottesville. And uh, on the way out here, we had U-Haul and I took a right to go up the house. She took a left. I said, where are you going? You know, so I follow her. She's going to the landfill. 
with all my stuff. Like, <laughs> she was serious. <laughs> we don't we won't be needing this anymore. But so if, if a two people, a, a two human beings can join their lives together, husband and wife, and dwell together, and that changes your life, doesn't it? And, and wives, you've never smelled socks like that before until you got married. Right? I mean, you never experienced anything like that. It's life-changing to, to dwell with someone, to become one with them. Now imagine the living God taking up residence in your life, in your heart. If that doesn't change you, I don't know what will. Now, I mentioned earlier uh, our, our email distribution list, the Yahoo group. And if you're not on that, I'd encourage you to sign up for that because I'm going to send out something tonight that uh, is, a book, uh, is a little booklet that you can buy. How many of you have ever read My Heart, Christ's Home by Robert Boyd Munger? Very few. Wow. Okay, so if, if you're not on Yahoo groups, then get on there. I'll send this out. It's a, they have a free PDF format. I can send this out. It's only, this is how many pages it is, just, you know, three or four pages. If you uh, have the internet, you can just go on, Robert Boyd Munger, My Heart, Christ Home. So I'm just going to read you an excerpt from, his, Robert Boyd Munger was a Presbyterian minister who wrote this, uh, this little pamphlet in 1951 based on these verses that we're reading right here, as, uh, among others. Uh, Ephesians uh, 3.16 also says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Or another translation is that Christ may settle down and be at home in your hearts by faith. Look, this is the Christian life. This is not just, I need to be a good person. Or, I need, I need a little bit of help with my finances. Or, you know, my work, I need a better job. Or, this is, the Christian life is that God takes up residence. What, what a, the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, humbles himself and comes into this sinner's life and changes it, forgives me, cleans house. So he wrote this. I'm just going to read to you a couple of little parts just to whet your appetite because it is so good and so convicting. He says, one evening I invited Jesus Christ into my heart. What an entrance he made. It was not a spectacular, emotional thing, but very real. It was at the very center of my life. He came into the darkness of my heart and turned on the light. He built a fire in the cold hearth and banished the chill. He started music where there had been stillness, and he filled the emptiness with his own loving, wonderful fellowship. I've never regretted opening the door to Christ, and I never will, not into eternity. This, of course, is the first step in making the heart Christ home. He has said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. That's Revelation 3.20. And, and so just a little aside, I'm going to step out of this for just a second so I can say this very simple fact. Um, God is not going to break in and break and enter to your heart. Jesus Christ is going to stand and he's going to knock. He's a gentleman. He wants to wait to be invited in. So if you don't want him in, he will not force his way. He will not force entry into your life. But he will wait and he will knock. 
and he wants to come in. Do you believe that God, I mean, like, why would he want fellowship with me? What do I have to offer him? Nothing. But I'm his child. He loves me. And he wants to come into my life. He wants to be part of the way I think. He wants to be part of the way I live. He wants to be part of everything I do. And I want to be part of everything he does. See, the two become one. Marriage on earth being a picture of the relationship between Christ and us. God and us. If you are interested in making your life an abode of the living God, let me encourage you to invite Christ into your heart and he will surely come. After Christ entered my heart and in the joy of this new relationship, I said to him, Lord, I want this heart of mine to be yours. I want to, uh, to have you settle down here and be perfectly at home. Everything I have belongs to you. Let me show you around and introduce you to the various features of the home that you may be more comfortable and that we may have fuller fellowship together. He was very glad to come, of course, and happier still to be given a place in the heart. So then what he does, he begins to go through, uh, it, taking a, a tour through a home as a parallel to our, a tour through our heart. So one example here is the library. And in our culture, I would maybe go a step farther and say uh, the media room. See, when he wrote this, there wasn't such a thing as we have now, home theaters and media rooms. So, but he goes from the standpoint of the library. The first room was the study, the library. Let us call it the study of the mind. Now, in my home, this room of the mind is a very small room with very thick walls, but is an important room. In a sense, it is the control room of the house. He entered with me and looked around at the books in the bookcase, the magazines upon the table, the pictures on the walls, and then I'll add the videos on the shelf. As I followed his gaze, I became uncomfortable. Strangely enough, I had not felt badly about this before, but now that he was there looking at these things, I was embarrassed. There were some books where, were there that his eyes were too pure to behold. There was a lot of trash and literature on the table that a Christian had no business reading. And as for the pictures on the walls, the imagination and thoughts of the mind, these were shameful. I turned to him and said, Master, I know that this room needs a radical alteration. Will you help me make it what it ought to be? To bring every thought into captivity to you? Surely, he said, gladly will I help you. First of all, take all the things that you are reading and looking at which are not helpful, pure, good, and true, and throw them out. Now put on the empty shelves the books of the Bible. Fill the library with scriptures and meditate on them day and night. As for the pictures on the walls, you will have difficulty controlling these images. But here is an aid. He gave me a full-size portrait of himself. Hang this centrally, he said, on the wall of the mind. I did, and I have discovered through the years that when my thoughts are centered upon Christ himself, his purity and power cause impure thoughts to back away. So he's helped me to bring my thoughts into captivity. May I suggest to you, if you have difficulty with this little room of the mind, that you bring Christ in there. Pack it full with the word of God. Meditate upon it and keep uh, before, before it the immediate presence of the Lord Jesus. And now he goes on to the dining room, to the living room, to the work room, to the rec room, and finally, he gets to this place called the, the, uh, the hall closet. There's just one more matter that I might share with you. One day I found him waiting for me at the door. An interesting, uh, excuse me, an arresting look was in his eye as I entered. He said to me, there is a peculiar odor in the house. That's exactly what Helga said to me when she came into my house. <clears throat> there is something dead around here. I think it's, it's upstairs. I think it's in the hall closet. As soon as he said this, I knew what he was talking about. Yes, there was a small closet up there on the landing, just a few feet square. 
In that closet behind lock and key, I had one or two little personal things that I did not, did not want anyone to know about. And certainly, I did not want Christ to see them. I knew they were dead and rotting things left over from the old life. And yet I loved them, and I wanted them so for myself that I was afraid to admit they were there. Reluctantly, I went up with him. And as we mounted the stairs, the odor became stronger and stronger. He pointed at the door. It's in there. Something dead is in there. I was angry. That's the only way I can put it. I had given him access to the library, the dining room, the living room, the workroom, the playroom. And now he was asking me about the little two-by-four closet. I said to myself, this is too much. I'm not going to give him the key. Well, he said, reading my thoughts, if you think I'm going to stay up here on the second floor with this odor, you are mistaken. I will take my bed out on the back porch. I'm certainly not going to put up with that. Then I saw him start down the stairs. When you have come to know and love Christ, the worst thing that can happen is to sense his fellowship retreating from you. I had to surrender. I'll give you the key, I said sadly, but you'll have to open the closet and clean it out. I haven't the strength to do it. I know, he said. I know you haven't. Just give me the key. Just authorize me to take care of that closet, and I will. So with trembling fingers, I passed the key to him. He took it from my hand, walked over to the door, opened it, entered it, took out all the putrefying stuff that was rotting there, and threw it away. Then he cleaned the closet, painted it, fixed it up, doing it all in a moment's time. Oh, what a victory and release to have that dead thing out of my life. So that's just a little snippet. Uh, You can look it up. I'll send it out later today. The point of all this being is, look, the, the answer, as Jesus is going away from them, the answer isn't, I'll leave you a set of rules. I'll leave you a list to accomplish. He said, I've given you my word. I've given you the truth. I've told you what you need to do to be about my Father's business. And I'm going to come into your heart. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit as an aid to assist you to know right, to know what to do, to listen, to have a relationship with me. You know, the Christian life is not always as black and white as we'd like to make it be. We'd like to make it just a set of rules we follow and check off the list. But the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. What to do in a certain situation, I may not know exactly what to do. Jesus didn't address that specifically. He didn't say, do I move to this place? Or do I move to that place? Do I take this job or take that job? I don't know. But I have the Spirit of God dwelling in me. Christ and the Father dwell in me, in my heart. And I can consult Him. I can talk with Him. We can have a relationship. And He can lead me by, uh, by his, his fellowship in my heart. I, if you don't, if you don't know that, if you don't understand that, you never will until you invite him in. You just never will. But this is the Christian life. A little bit farther and we'll, and we'll uh, finish for the day. My Father will love him. We will come to him and make our home. We'll dwell with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. So the Holy Spirit, uh, this hit me the other day. Uh, The Holy Spirit, it's called the Spirit of Truth, uh, in a few places in this. But if God sends into my life the Holy Spirit, 
Because we just look over that word holy. We just get to spirit. And we think, somehow we think that the spirit of God is this energy or this power. But this is, this is the, the, the life of God. Spirit, in, in, it just means life or breath. So the Holy Spirit is the life of God, the holy life of God. Now, if the holy life of God, this person, it's God. If you could take God and distill him down, you know, God dwells in unapproachable light, the Bible says. Take Jesus and you distill him down to his personality, to his nature, and take away his physical body, you'd have the Spirit. It's him. Like, there's a, there's a you that's not just your body, right? If you lose an arm or a leg in an accident, does, do you cease to be you? Does that change who you are? No, you're still you. You're just minus a limb or something like that. So there's a you that, that's deeper than your body. And the Spirit of God, if the Spirit of God comes to dwell in my life, God himself comes to dwell in my life, and he's holy, what should that produce in my life? It makes sense, doesn't it? It should produce holiness. Because he doesn't give me, you know, he doesn't put in me the lying spirit or the disgusting spirit or the complaining spirit. Puts in me the Holy Spirit. I was like, yeah. God puts in me the Holy Spirit and then God begins to produce in me holiness. And again, not just a power, not just some, some disembodied energy or something like that, but he, and it's a, it's a masculine pronoun, he will teach you all things. He's a teacher. The Holy Spirit is a teacher. Now, I like that. Now, sometimes, you know, because sometimes, like I'm reading Isaiah right now. We're going through Isaiah Wednesday nights, and I read Isaiah. I don't understand what that means. But then I listen to someone who's a teacher, and the Spirit in me goes, yeah, that's what it's about. Oh, yeah, thanks, Lord. That's great. I get it. Now, you've marked 1 Corinthians chapter 2, right? So let's just go there. Because how many of you have ever picked up the Bible and said, I just do not get this book? I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's just, a, it's words on a page. That's how I started in my Christian life. Picked up the Bible, read Genesis 1 through 5, gave up at, the, you know, at Genesis 5. Ah, I don't understand this book. But I wanted to understand it. I wanted to know God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse 9. This is interesting. Because you've all read this quote before. You've, you've quoted it many times. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. How many of you have, have said that before? And you go, oh, well, you know, heaven, we're not going to know what it's like. We can't know. God's not, you know, eyes not seen, ears not heard, things that have entered into the heart of man. But look at what verse 10 says. But God has revealed them to us. Now you can't use that verse that way anymore. I just ruined it for you. The point of the verse is God has revealed them to us. How has he done it? For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now jump down a little bit to verse 13. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, listen, who's the natural man? The natural man is not the spiritual man. They're not, the, not the person who is saved, who has the Spirit in him. The natural man, without the Spirit, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. 
So without the Spirit of God interpreting and helping you understand the heart of God and the teachings of God, you're sort of like lost in a, in a, in a dark room. You just don't know. I don't understand. It's kind of like dealing with teenagers. I don't understand what they're doing. I need the spirit of teenager to understand teenage thinking. I had it once. Long time ago. Back to John 14. So if you, if you, if you try to read the Bible, oh, I just don't get it. You know, you, you won't get it unless you have been saved and God has given to you as a gift the Spirit of God, the, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance the things that I said. And all of a sudden, you're God, in your mind, you know, the Holy Spirit is working to, you're remembering things, and you go, oh, I, I didn't even need my ginkgo biloba this morning, and I could remember that. Like, it just, you know, you're in counseling with somebody, you're talking to someone at work, and all of a sudden, this verse comes flying to your head, and you're like, where'd that come from? The Spirit of God is doing it. It seems so natural. Well, I'll tell you what, let's stop there. I'd love to go farther, because... Chapter, uh, or verse 27 begins with, uh, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Oh, he begins to show how the Spirit of God uh, is, is made known also through the, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. So we'll get to that next week. That's enough for one day, right? We just, we had, we unloaded a, a lot today uh, from God. So I'm going to invite Nick and the praise team to come back up. And as they come up, you know, also in your, in your bulletin, uh, there's, a, there's a form that has place for your name and your phone number. And there's a little line, there's a little square at the bottom that says, I want to commit my life to Jesus. And it's interesting to me, week after week, I'd, I know, come on up here. If you want to make Christ your Savior, you're going to be forgiven of your sins, come on up here. And nobody ever comes up. But people are marking in their bulletins that, that, they, that they want that. And so I'm okay with that. It doesn't matter whether you come up front or it was Billy Graham crusade or you marked it in your bulletin. The, the point is, is that you let Christ into your heart. That's the point. And so uh, I want to direct your, your, in, your, your eyes to that form. And, and as you've been hearing about these things, the Spirit of God and Christ dwelling in my heart. And you, you look at Christians that you know, and you should look, and you should see what is it that makes you tick? What is it that makes you different? How do you, how, what is it that makes you handle things the way you handle them? It's the Spirit of God living in my life. God, God has changed my life. The Spirit of God cannot come into your life and leave you the way you are. It's got to be transformational, doesn't it? So let's stand. We'll close with the final song.